Hello and welcome to the latest Racing News 365.com podcast episode. This weekend, we are racing around the streets of Miami. Joining me to analyse round five of the Formula One calendar, I have Editorial Director Dieter Renkin and Asian correspondent Michael Butterworth. Uh, Dieter, I know you at the race yesterday and now you are in Fort Myers. Correct, indeed. Yeah, Belva came down last week uh, ahead of the race, obviously. Um, I was fortunate enough to be invited to the Collier Collection, which is an absolutely superb collection of, of cars, predominantly race cars, owned by Miles Collier, um, a big Porsche fanatic, but he'd also been friendly with guys like Briggs Cunningham, uh, Lance Reventlow, all sort of 60s American racers. And um, he took over their collections and uh, an absolutely superb collection. But I think the best part is actually the archive stroke library. They've got something like 700,000 prints, uh, motor orientated, be it motoring or motorsport orientated prints. They've got a library. I mean, they sort of said, Rankin, let me have a look. And they said, oh, you wrote for this uh, publication back then. You wrote this superb stuff. So I was sort of in, in seventh heaven. And then from there, I went to Miami and then returned uh, last night back to Fort Myers, which is about uh, 200 or 150 miles um, northwest of, of Miami. And I'll fly out later on today and then get ready for Imola in a less than a fortnight. Yeah, it's, got, it's coming so quick. And uh, Michael, Michael, hello to you. I know you love your facts. So Miami, Michael had no yellow flags, no safety cars, no virtual safety cars, no red flags, no retirements. And I believe only one error in the pit lane with, uh, with signs. Yeah, and uh, this was, uh, the, the Miami Grand Prix was the 1,084th Grand Prix uh, ever since the World Championship was inaugurated in 1950. It's the 14th time that we've had no retirements, and uh, 13 of them have been since 2005. So it just shows just how reliable the cars have got in in recent years. Really quite exceptional stuff. And for all the talk that, uh, you know, we were expecting to see safety cars and virtual safety cars and red flags at Miami, we saw on Friday and Saturday plenty of instances of drivers going backwards or running wide or going into the wall and we didn't see anything like that on Sunday it was all it was all very very ordered and uh yeah uh, a very very uh well a surprisingly uneventful race from uh, from that point of view but there was plenty of intrigue going on up and down the field and uh, plenty for us to dig into today Absolutely, Michael. I'm, I'm intrigued to hear your figure of 1084, which obviously is a sort of figure that's being bandied around officially. But, you know, we're in the US. We shouldn't forget that some of those races were actually uh, back in the 50s. Indianapolis counts towards the World Championships so not strictly Formula One. In 52, we had the Formula Two cars uh, contesting the top series. Is that again, you know, is it Formula One World Championship? So that's a lovely thing about the sport. Whatever statistic gets thrown around, <laughs> there's always a counter we can come back and say, oh, but what about this or that or the other? And it's, it's great uh, sort of pub, pub quiz type fodder. Yeah, I was at the 2019 uh, Chinese Grand Prix. The, the, they sold that as the 1,000th race. So I, I'm going to take it from there that we're 1,000. And I think, I think it's 1,084 was, uh, was Miami. Correct. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. But as I say, they're just all these sort of various vagaries, so to speak. But yeah, you carry on, Bell. Sorry we interrupted you there. But of course, we're being overenthusiastic to, to get the news out to our readers and listeners. <laughs> my new my new uh, word is various vagaries, Dieter, which I'm going to steal from you <laughs> if that's the case. So let's uh, let's dig into the weekend. So Perez, let's start with him at the top team. Uh, Dieter, he had such a clean race start at the beginning. 
He did indeed, but then again, I sort of felt that he didn't really consolidate that advantage. You know, he he didn't open up enough of a gap. Um, it, it was a peculiar weekend for, for Checo because on Saturday he said, well, you know, this is one of the worst days of my, my life recently. And then, of course, he managed to get himself pole position after that Charles Leclerc um, thump into the, the barriers. And then he had the advantage at the start. But, uh, you know, when I spoke to Max on Saturday afternoon, I said, you know, what can you do from ninth? And he said, minimum P. And I sort of looked at him and I thought, well, you know, this, this, this guy's kind of confident that he's going to be able to overtake all those cars and get close enough to, to Checo to potentially um, challenge. And of course he did. And I think Checo will now look back and rue that maybe at the beginning he didn't really go out all out and get himself a, a very, very solid cushion. Yeah, I mean, the real interest, as you said, Dieter, Verstappen starting in ninth, I think we all knew that he was going to come through the field. It was just a question of how long it would take him to get up to P2. The answer was by lap 15, uh, he got up to P2. And by lap 15, he was only 3.5 seconds behind Perez. And if you compare the gap uh, Perez to Verstappen at the end of, say, lap one, once the, once all the cars have, have, have gone round the lap, he actually closed the gap to Perez whilst overtaking eight cars. So uh, Perez just, it, at the end of the race, Perez seemed really sort of deflated. It wasn't like he was managing an issue. He just seemed slower, just objectively slower than Verstappen and just about every every corner of the race and I think this is a, a pretty big psychological blow for Perez to be beaten like that so convincingly when he should have been the favourite starting on pole position with that Red Bull the advantage that we know it has over the rest of the field and with Verstappen down in ninth place yeah absolutely and I think if we also look at it from a Hispanic perspective I mean there were Mexican flags all over the place you know Miami is very very Hispanic I think he sort of felt that he's got the home advantage so to speak but he frankly didn't uh, it didn't really consolidate on that. So, uh, yeah, as, as you say, I think he's a bit deflated. But equally, you know, he, he does go home still within striking distance of, of Max at the top end. And, uh, yeah, who knows what happens at the next race? You know, if, if Max has a, an issue, Checker could end up leading the championship then. And there was such a disparity in the Red Bull cars, Dieter, with the radio going between the pits and Verstappen and the pit and Checo. What did you make of that? Because there was so much communication between Verstappen and his team, but not so much with Sergio Perez and his team. Correct. But, you know, I think before we start looking for conspiracies and all sorts of things, I think what we should should accept is that different drivers have got different approaches to their races. You know, Lewis is constantly chatting, 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 asking this, asking that, asking the other. Uh, Fernando every now and then dispenses some some assistance towards his teammate about use my brake balance or do this or do the other. Uh, then on the, at the other end of the scale, we had Kimmy. You know, whenever they spoke to Kimmy, he'd sort of famously say, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. And I think different drivers have got to different approach to this and I think you'll find generally we find the communication between Max and GP his his uh, race engineer is a lot more lively than with, with Checo and his. Checo is just not a very talkative guy. I don't think it means that the team is in any way disadvantaging him. I mean ultimately if Checo felt that he could go and ask the question. Let's have a look at Jeddah. You know there he was very very vocal on the radio. What's the gap? You know what what lap times is Max doing etc. So I, I don't think we should seek conspiracies. I think it's just a matter of individual choice uh, uh, in a particular event. And Alonso had such a, a lonely race that he started watching TV uh, <laughs> whilst racing. Uh, he said that Lance Stroll had a great uh, overtake on 
turn one. Moving on to Mercedes, Dieter. Hamilton was complaining about the W14. Uh, he was, but then again, he's been, been complaining about sort of W13, W14 for the last 18 months. <laughs> and I don't think that will go away until he's got a winning car. Again, is that a, a criticism of the team? Yes, it is a, a tacit criticism. But equally, it also proves that he hasn't lost that fire, that will to win. And, you know, the minute he stops complaining about it, he's complacent. And that means, you know, I don't care anymore. You know, it's, it's over. And that's just not that's just not Lewis. Um, I, I'm not surprised. The one thing that I will say, though, and I'll, I'll sort of add this in here at this point, is that for all Red Bull's domination, I do believe that teams like Ferrari, Mercedes, to a far lesser degree, Aston Martin, certainly Alpine, you know, all the, all the people who are in the sort of top four or five, or should be in the top four or five are making it very, very easy for Red Bull. And, uh, you know, they, they keep saying, well, Red Bull are running away. Well, you know, all Mercedes have got to do is ask themselves why. <laughs> they have got a dud car. That's why Red Bull is running away. Ferrari say they're running away. Why? Because they've got dud team management, dud strategies. Uh, when I say a dud car, certainly not a car that's up there. Uh, Charles Leclerc yesterday was very, very vocal about the Ferrari, saying it's totally inconsistent. He says in the same corner, it can go from oversteer to understeer um, uh, for no reason whatsoever. And worse, it doesn't do the same every lap. So, you know, um, it's, it's all very well for, for Lewis to go and complain. Yes, the car is substandard, but he must go and talk to his team about it and sort it out, or they must sort it out for him. I actually thought for Hamilton and Mercedes, this was actually quite a good exercise in damage limitation because Hamilton qualified down in 13th, especially in the early stages of the race. He, he struggled to w- make his way through the field, certainly as easily as we saw Verstappen do. Uh, he did manage to make up quite a few places towards the end. He finished in sixth. George Russell finished fourth. Um, so Mercedes actually outscored Aston Martin by 20 points to 15 because Alonso finished third. Lance Stroll had a poor race, uh, was knocked out of qualifying early and didn't then make it into the points in the race. So Mercedes are now just six points behind Aston Martin uh, who are second in the constructors. They've got a, a big upgrade planned for Imola. So you know, may- maybe there are, are signs of, uh, of, of something of a turning of the corner soon for uh, for the Silver Arrows. Yeah, that, I mean that that's a very good point about closing up the gap, but I think that's that's sort of temporary. I mean, Lance did have a, a bad run. He wasn't in the first race, or uh, he was injured in the first race. He wasn't in testing because of that bicycle incident. So, uh, you know, that there are certain mitigating factors, but I think ultimately, uh, what Lewis has got to accept is that right now, in the same car, the W14, George does seem to have an edge on him. So I think the first thing that, that Lewis should do before for complaining about W14 is look at his own performance and just see whether he could up it. Uh, not an easy car. Obviously, upping his performance won't be easy, but, you know, if George can do it, so should so should Lewis at, I don't know, three, four, five, six times the salary. Yeah, we saw that with Mercedes' strategy with Hamilton, Dieter, letting George go past in, the, uh, in that race. Yeah, absolutely. But then again, I think that, you know, some of that is teamwork. Some of it is, is tactical because, you know, if you know that you're on different strategies at different points, your ties are on different stuff, you know, why bother fighting uh, and, and, and damage your own race? So, you know, again, I, 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 Lewis certainly hasn't lost his, his race craft. Um, he may find it difficult to have speed with this particular car. But, you know, ultimately, you know, he did move up, as, as Michael says. He moved up very, very well from the, uh, the second half of the grid. 
It was, it was definitely interesting to see from, from my point of view. Uh, Dita, you mentioned uh, Ferrari, and I, I want to dig into that a little bit deeper. And it was, uh, it was a weekend to forget, forget, not only in the race, but also in quali as well. Oh, yeah, but I mean, Ferrari have had quite a few weekends to forget. Let, you know, let, let's be very, very blunt and honest about this. Um, you know, I think that ultimately this one in terms of forget forgetability uh, could actually be shaded by some of the others. Uh, and going forward, unless things improve, there are going to be a lot more races to to forget for Ferrari. Um, is it the change of team principle? No, it's never that simple. Is it down to the car? No, it's never that simple. Is it down to maybe bad luck? You know, the drivers are basically being not rewarded for, for a lot of the effort due to, you know, mechanical stuff, etc. But ultimately, Ferrari does need to take a very, very, very serious hard look at itself and work out exactly where it's going. And yeah, I fear that they're not going to sort this out under this formula. And, you know, this formula goes until the end of 25. The chances of them having a rapid turnaround from 24 and 25, I think, are pretty slim. I think, once again, they're going to be writing off a full championship and they're going to head for their previous drought where, you know, back in uh, the early 2000s, it was from 79 through to 2000 before they managed to get themselves a um, another world champion. Jody Schechter in 79 and then, of course, Michael um, in 2000. And ultimately, I think we, they, they're going to be asking themselves this question, you know, are we heading for another 21 years? Because Kimi was the last in, in 2007. And another weekend where Charles Leclerc made an unforced error. Obviously, uh, that uh, that crash at the end of qualifying, that, that affected everyone else's lap. That it contributed to Max Verstappen starting down the, down in ninth place. And, uh, you know, Leclerc only managed seventh in the race. And he was stuck behind Kevin Magnussen's Haas for what I thought was an embarrassingly long time. Uh, and it's not not where Ferrari would want to be at all. The car looks quick over one lap. You know, we, we saw him in Baku got pole position, but uh, they just, they, they fall back so much on the Sunday, certainly compared to Red Bull. And uh, yeah, obviously Fred Vasseur coming in as a new team principal, Lauren Mekis, David Sanchez are either leaving or have left. Um, so a lot of transition and a lot of change at Ferrari. And um, yeah, not quite sure where they go from here, to be honest. Although it's a lot better for them than McLaren. I mean, McLaren really had a weekend to forget. You know, let's not forget that. <laughs> you know, here are two teams that back in the in the um, the late nineties were really going at it, hammer and tongs at each other. It's not happening. I mean, McLaren are just not even in the mix. They they are down there with with Williams, and you know they used to be with Williams. They used to be sparring uh, mates, but they are now, but at the wrong end of the of the uh, the order. If you turn the timesheets upside down, those two teams would look pretty good. Yeah, and both cars out in Q one. Norris and Piastri. Norris qualifying seventeenth, Piastri nineteenth, um, and this is just one race after their much vaunted upgrade. Or they they were talking about three major upgrades over the course of the year to try to bring everything back uh zach brown before the before the action got going he he was talking about saying that the energy in the team was great well if we have a bad result then we just uh, dust each other off and uh, and you know we go at it again and uh yeah the, i think this just proved that this first update was aimed at more at creating a stable platform to build on than actually bringing outright pace to baku and then beyond uh yeah absolutely i look i hear where zach is coming from uh but i think we should also cut the cut the team some slack. 
They don't at the moment, for whatever reason, and let's not delve too much into history, but for, for whatever reason, they don't have their own wind tunnel. Uh, they don't really have an up-to-date CFD. The simulator needed, uh, shall we say, some upgrades. Uh, part of this is down to a lack of investment for whatever reason, probably the last eight or nine years. So Zach has inherited this. There are plans in place for a new wind tunnel. There are plans in place for CFD upgrades, for simulator upgrades. But the situation is that at the moment, they're actually wind tunnel testing at Toyota's wind tunnel in Cologne, which means that every time they need to send something for testing, it's got to go all the way across the channel with all the implications of Brexit and customs and, you know, all these sort of things. Um, and also that wind tunnel has not really been upgraded to Formula One spec. Um, I was talking to one of the team people and basically that wind tunnel was state of art back in 2006 when it was built, but it doesn't have, for example, adaptive walls. So when you have the car, what they call in your, which is sort of sideways on in a corner, for example, uh, with an adaptive wind tunnel, the walls will also open and run at the same angle. So you have um, the the airstream following the course of the car. When you have your, you have the car basically sideways on, but the walls are basically dead straight like that, instead of being at the angle. And so the, the airstream doesn't actually follow the car accurately. And this is one of the, the major issues they've got. I did say to them, yeah, but you know, the Toyota sports cars being being um, tested in that tunnel and it's, you know, it's winning everything in, in WEC. And they said, yeah, but that is a closed wheeler car. And we're not having the advantage around the, the exposed wheels and the open wheels and whatever and the cornering. So let's not be too, too critical. Let's cut them slack until they got the new wind tunnel verified up and running. Then let's have a look. It is not a comfortable period. But what else do you think Dieter McLaren need to do apart from having their own, own wind tunnel? Well, as I said, it's a matter of simulation. It's a matter of CFD. Um, there were certain areas of sort of lack of investment over a period. I personally believe that it was down to McLaren Automotive being established uh, about 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago. At that stage, money that should have been invested in the Formula One team was sort of invested in other facilities. They built this massive, uh, they called it at one stage Paragon, which you know, is indicative of the sort of scale of the of the building. They now call it the McLaren Technical Center, the MTC. But, you know, you've got um, all sorts of very futuristic um, uh, road car production facilities in there. There's a lake which is, which is uh, used to, to cool down the wind tunnel, which again is great for road car stuff, but it's not F1 state of art. Uh, there are tunnels connecting the two different factories. So the F1 thing and the, the road car I've been through there, very, very, very impressive. Cost of fortune and that money, unfortunately, didn't end up in, in facilities for the race team. That's my theory. Certainly, uh, we need to, to wait until they are up to speed and see what happens. The, the McLaren R2 is probably my favorite road car uh, out at the moment. So if McLaren are listening, I wouldn't mind having one. Uh, but moving on to, to team principals, Dieter, Christian Horner, the Red Bull principal, had some interesting comments over the weekend. He did indeed. Well, basically, well, a couple of things. First of all, one of them was, you know, he's talking about turkeys and Christmas when I asked him about uh, the, the new teams because that process is now sort of drawing to an end. I believe there are four new teams that, that have thrown their hat in the ring. And, you know, we can we can discuss this in greater detail next week because um, 
the uh, the closing date of the fifteenth of May is drawing drawing near. Uh, but basically, you know, he doesn't seem to see the need for an, for additional teams. He thinks that ten are great. He believes that uh, the facilities at existing circuits may not be able to accommodate more than ten teams. My answer to that is pretty simple: bring less trucks, bring the smaller hospitality, whatever. None of these add to the racing, whereas one or two additional teams would add to the racing. But of course, it's not his decision where the additional teams come in. That's down to F1 and the FI, and it's certainly not my decision. <laughs> um, so from, from that perspective, yes, but he was pretty vocal about this. The other thing that he was talking about was, um, as I said earlier on, that he does believe that the team has done their best to be where they are, uh, but equally, he does sort of believe that maybe the, the other teams have not developed uh, since last year at the rate and pace that they should have. And I think, again, our sort of criticism of, of Ferrari, of, of Mercedes, of Alpine, of McLaren, etc., uh, sort of bears that out. I mean, they are making it very, very easy for, for Red Bull to sort of take um, one-twos on the trot. Uh, Dieter, you mentioned Alpine. Uh, their CEO, Lauren Rossi, Michael, had some uh, <laughs> choice words for his team. Yeah, he's uh, lit something of a, a firecracker up uh, Alpine's collective backside uh, with uh, some comments that he made. Uh, very, very critical of uh, of the performance of the team, of the car so far this year. He said, uh, we're in a position that is not at all worthy of the resources invested and we are far, we are very far from the final objective of the year. He called the first race in Bahrain amateurish, you know, when Gasly was uh, knocked out in Q1. Esteban Ocon had three penalties over the course of the race. Um, Alpine had targeted being F1's fourth best team this year, closing the gap to to, to the top three. It's worth noting the, the comments that he made, he actually made them before the race and they had a better race. You know, they finished eighth and ninth, so it's not as high as they would like to be, but it's a double points finish in a race of no attrition. Um, but I wonder if, uh, you know, we're talking about teams not really progressing as they, as they should have done. I wonder if Lauren Rossi is casting envious glances at Aston Martin and seeing the massive step forward that they have made from the, from last year to this year to looking like they're being the second fastest team and I wonder if he's thinking well if they can do this why can't we and of course Renault the, the parent company of Alpine Renault have got a very sort of flip-flop history in Formula One you know they've, they've come into the sport they've left again they've come back in they've left again they've come back in um, and I'm, want, I'm wondering if if Rossi's comments maybe point to the fact that Renault if they if they look at the investment that, uh, it, that they're having to put in to maintain Alpine in Formula One and they're not getting much return on that I wonder if they're they're thinking about taking their ball away and playing elsewhere instead well, I, you know, first of all, I think um, he was very vocal, but equally, I do believe that the team has not sort of made the start that it should. He was asked in an interview what he thought it was with a French publication, uh, French TV, actually. Uh, and he was just being open and honest. And, you know, ultimately, um, you know, Zach Brown should also acknowledge that his team is not where it should be. Um, Ferrari, for example. But I think we also need to look at the structure of, of the Alpine team overall. Let's not forget they don't have a partner team. Ferrari have got um, uh, Alfa Romeo, they have Haas. Uh, Red Bull have got Alfa Tauri. Mercedes have got a whole run of them. You know, the Aston Martin take their PU, so does um, uh, McLaren take their, their engine. They've got a deal with, with Williams. So when you have a look at this, the data collection that the other teams have is two to three times as much as, as Renault. And, you know, they keep saying, well, it's an advantage. We don't have to worry about customers, etc." Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? I think that if somebody like Andretti 
was accepted, took the power unit, took some of the bits that they could, the rear suspension, the front suspension, the whatever, and did a sort of a Haas deal, uh, the deal similar to what Haas have got with Ferrari, I think you'll find that their, their fortunes would change. The other thing is, do they really have a top drawer driver pairing? I'm not convinced that for a works team, they do have the very, very best drivers available to them. Yeah, Esteban's great. Yeah, Pierre Gasly's quick. Both won races, but under um, a rather fortunate circumstances, shall we say. Uh, is the driver pairing really becoming of a full-on works factory team? They don't have a superstar. Um, equally, you know, when you talk about their, their, their various names, they don't have superstar designers like Adrian Newey and you know, whatever. Um, and accordingly, I, until they really spend some serious money on sorting this out, I don't think that they are that there's much hope of them moving much beyond sort of fourth or fifth in the grid. And one of the reasons that they don't have any partner teams or any affiliated teams is because nobody wants to take the Renault Power Unit. We had McLaren uh, with the Renault Power Unit a few years ago, and then uh, they had it for a few years. They couldn't do much with it, and then they switched to Mercedes. So they, that that doesn't exactly uh, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement of uh, of the state of Renault's Power Unit. Well, before that, we had Red Bull. I mean, Christian Horner was very very vocal about the Power Unit. I mean, they they basically severed the the, the contract. Uh, so you know all. Um, uh, we, we're hearing that there is sort of power unit parity at the moment in terms of, of output and whatever else. But there must be a reason why nobody wants it. There must be a reason why nobody wants the back end of a Renault. Uh, they all want the back end of a Ferrari. They want the back end of a Mercedes. They want the back end of a Red Bull, but they don't want the back end of a Renault. And I think uh, Rossi should ask himself that question first. Could you, Dieter, could you imagine a scenario where Andretti just simply buy out Alpine's entry in order to get into the sport that way if, uh, if, if Group Renault decide they don't want to continue? No, because that would, I would imagine, uh, imply they also need to take over the power unit uh, side. Uh, you know, Renault learned in uh, 2009 onwards, they learned that if you're only a power unit supplier, which is what they were then until 2016, that you get absolutely no, no kudos if your car wins because it's a team that's won, but you certainly get a hiding <laughs> when you lose. So um, they learned from that, that, and also you don't get any money as a PU supplier uh, at all. When I say no money, of course, the team pays you, but even that is regulated, uh, but you don't get any prize money as a power unit supplier. So there'd be nothing for for uh, Renault to gain by selling the team but keeping the power unit, and I can't see why Andretti would want to go and buy, buy a power unit, yeah, a power unit supplier, particularly one that has no customers. Do you think the comment that Rossi made, Dieter, do you think it helps or hinders the team? Um, I think it depends on the on the psyche of the team itself. You know, I, I've always believed that you do need to be uh, hard. This is Formula One. You know, we're, we're not playing Sky Electrics. We're not playing Formula Four, right? This is Formula One. This is world-class stuff. And they are not delivering at world-class level, without a doubt. There are others that aren't either, which is why we're criticizing them. But I think that ultimately, um, uh, if anything, uh, I, I would be very concerned if I were Otmar Tafnau. He is the team principal. Um, yeah, ultimately, uh, they've got to ask themselves a question. Um, Otmar, what are you doing about this? And if he can point to the fact that there's a lack of, of investment, a lack of customers, and if they accept that as being the reason, then it can't be changed. But equally, I'm not convinced that some stuff internally cannot cannot be changed. And accordingly, I think they need to talk to Otmar and, and find out. We have a week's break. So Dieter, Michael and I will be back in seven days to preview the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix. We'll see you then. 